What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is part two of my two-part interview with uh, writer, showrunner Clyde Phillips. Now, last week we talked a lot about Dexter, and if you missed that episode after you listen to this one, go back and check that out. This week we talk a lot about his career, and coming up through movies of the week, also getting involved in television comedy like Parker Lewis' Can't Lose. He spent time as the showrunner of Nurse Jackie. He's one of the creators of Suddenly Susan. Uh, He's had a a very long and prosperous career and also has some great advice. So, part two with Clyde Phillips, this week on Hollywood and Levine. Let's talk a little bit about your career. Another Valley boy who who made good. Um, Every writer breaks in differently. How did you break in? Well, I, I, I grew up in Boston. I grew up in the poorest part of Boston called Dorchester. And um, ended up going to Boston Latin School, which kind of saved my life and got me out of that little ghetto that I was in, uh, where you're destined to be a mechanic or a tailor. Or, and I had always, and the guy who owned, this is more of an answer than you want, but the guy who owned the triple decker that I lived in owned a bookstore. And I used to go work at his bookstore. And he would give me any books I wanted. Now, I wasn't sophisticated enough to take Charles Dickens or Jane Austen, so I took paratroopers and dinosaurs and, <laughs> and, and all, that, all that stuff. And um, read, 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 read. I read everything. So I knew pretty – and then I started writing as a 12-year-old. I mean, I, I wrote the um, – I would write – I would stand on our porch on the third floor and watch the men – at the time it was men – trudge up the hill from the bus stop and go into their – various apartment buildings that I'd write stories about what they were going to encounter. Some of the men I knew, some I didn't. Um, and then I started writing stories about, you know, Buffalo Bill Cody and Annie Oakley and, you know, George Patton and, and things like that. So by the time I got to uh, California, it was, I had the bug to do it. Um, and the, so the breaking in part was I was, as I mentioned to you before we started this recording, I was, went to UCLA and I thought I was going to be a lawyer and um, was an English major. And one of my professors came to me and said, um, I heard you're applying to law school. 
I don't, I don't think your heart's in it. And uh, if you apply to grad school, I'll make sure you get in and you'll get a full ride and, and uh, you'll be a, a, um, TA, a teaching assistant. So I did that and let that all happen. And then that summer, then the following summer, uh, young teachers don't get to teach because it's so easy. The summer school is so easy and it's, it's sinecure for the older professors because they do it in their sleep. So they did it. So I needed money. And uh, if you live in New York in the old days and you needed money, you'd drive a cab. If you live in L.A. in the old days and you needed money, you go on a game show. So <laughs> I went on a game show, won some money. What game show? Ended up, it's called Split Second. Okay. Yeah, Marky Post was, was, was one of the writers with me. Hmm. Um, and uh, Joanna Gleason, um, who is Monty Hall's daughter. It was a Monty right. Hall. Monty Hall owned the show. Mm-hmm. Hades Hall. It's so nice to be able to talk to somebody that would get this stuff. Who knows who the Beatles were? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I got a job writing for the game show. And uh, in, in doing so, I had my little toe in the business, Right meeting other assistants on other shows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The show ended up getting canceled. And um, I don't think it was cause and effect, but there might have been. And, but now I had known, now I'd met other assistants who introduced me to other people. And I met these two guys, Rick Rosenberg and Bob Christensen, who were the kings of the television movies. Uh, they were partners, in the kings of television movies in those days. And they had just finished shooting the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Um, and then they're, you know, which won a dozen yeah, Emmys. very famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they hired me to be their second secretary and uh, having me read scripts and do stuff and get them lunch and gas up their cars and do all of this stuff. And um, I ate their first secretary alive. And then... You know, the thing is, in which I, I tell young writers or people who want to get into the business is lunch is the most important thing in anybody's day. Um, and get, you got to get it right. So I would go out and get them lunch and then uh, make sure, A, made it, made sure it was right. And B, made sure that when the door closed on their big office, that I was still in the room and I would sit off to the side and they'd be having a writing me- writer's meeting on some script or other and if they were having problems with the scene or something and not getting along with the writer i'd go home and take a stab at that scene and give it to them and uh the next thing you know i was their guy and uh did a bunch of movies with them uh queen of the stardust ballroom uh born innocent um others and then um Moved over to, let me get this in order. Moved over to Bob Banner, if you remember him. Mm-hmm. And to run his TV movie department, what the deal is that any movie I sold, I would produce. So I produced my first movie, uh, Bud and Lou, the Abbott Costello story with Harvey Corman and Buddy Hackett. How was that um, dealing with Buddy Hackett? That must have been he fun. Was, he was, you know what? He was delightful. He loved the role. He loved me. He, his only demand, which now sounds glamorous, but then was horribly exhausting because he was doing, you know, he's a nightclub entertainer, so they don't sleep. So right. he was doing Las Vegas three or four nights a week while shooting in L.A. So I would have to fly with him 
on his jet to, I mean, it all sounds glamorous, but imagine shooting 12 hours and then getting on a jet to go watch this comedian do his show. And I would just fall asleep in his booth and then um, <laughs> in his comp booth and then get back on the plane and fly back to LA and try to get two hours sleep. Um, but he was, he was delightful. He knew that there was, the, he knew, he knew he was perfect for the role and he was great. And Harvey was wonderful too. Artie Johnson was in it, Michelle Lee. Um, <clears throat> so then from Bob Banner, so I did a bunch of movies there. And then Harris Cattleman, if you remember that name. Sure. From uh, 20th century Fox. Yeah. So he yeah. took over Fox and my girlfriend at the time, Claire Townsend, if you remember her, um, one of the baby moguls, uh, introducing me to Harris and Harris set up my first company. Let me hang up my first shingle. And, uh, and while there, I, I wrote a couple of pilots and worked on to pay off my deal, worked on a couple of, um, uh, on the air series. And then, um, I met a guy named Ed Feldman, who, uh, the feature producer who had done, um, he was nominated for an Oscar for Witness and done several, the, the, the Truman Show, done several big movies and would, was looking to get into TV movies. And we talked for a while and uh, he said, you're too expensive. I can't work with you. And I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll, I went on my way. And then he called me two weeks later. He was also on the Fox lot. Uh, and he called me two weeks later. He said, you know, I've met with a dozen people since I've met with you and I can't have lunch with any of them and I can have lunch with you. I'll meet your terms. And, uh, the next thing I knew we were doing, uh, we did five or six TV movies together and then a pilot and the TV movie business was dying. And, um, this is when the, what was it? The, uh, what commission, you know, the whole financial impact, financial, whatever the tax incentive thing went away. And from TV movies. And um, so I had a pilot idea that actually Robert Lewis, whom I mentioned earlier, brought, had brought to me. Uh, Fox didn't want to do it, so I took it to Warner Brothers. They wanted to do it. And Ann Beckett wrote it, and I wrote the story. We did co-story, shot it. And it was, it's about, here's what it was about. It was called Midas Valley, and it's about a bunch of 20-something billionaires uh, who are making their living in um, uh, in the tech business. This is 25 years too soon. Uh-huh, yeah. And uh, and having to deal with it. And, but to tell you how out of place it was, my star was Robert Stack, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then a bunch of unknowns. We actually had Robin Wright in it. We let her out to go do Princess Bride. Uh, in any event, made the pilot, we're, we went to New York. We're on the board. Uh, you know, all my pals I had matriculated with were now execs at ABC where I had sold it. You know, Jordan Kerner and Ann Daniel and um, uh, Brandon Stoddard, all these people. And um, Len Hill. Um, and um, they loved it. And then at the last minute, they didn't pick it up. And the reason they didn't pick it up was me and meaning that they went with Len Goldberg and somebody much more experienced with a lesser show called um, Paper Dolls about the modeling business. Um, they ordered scripts. They ordered six scripts. We did them, and then the whole thing just fizzled. But by then, I was under contract to the studio, and 
did my finally did my first series there called Houston Nights, which is a cop show, CBS's version of Miami Miami Vice, and then uh, I created Parker Lewis Can't Lose. We'll have more with Clyde Phillips in a moment, but first a word about dad grass. Now, since marijuana is now legal, it's great in many respects, but also there are times when it's not really that well regulated and you may get too high. It's like, mm, that's not what you want. You want just kind of a mellow buzz. And that's what you get from dad grass. Dad grass is legal, organic, smokable hemp that relaxes your body and it puts you in a mellow mood. It doesn't, you know, make you think, oh man, I'm back in 1968. All dad grass products are federally legal for ages 21 and over and it ships right to your door anywhere in the U.S. So, right now, dad grass is offering our listeners 20% off your first order when you order Dadgrass by going to dadgrass.com slash Hollywood. Once again, that's dadgrass.com slash Hollywood for 20% off your first order. Dadgrass.com slash Hollywood. Well, let's go back to Parker Lewis. Let's because okay. that's a big turn for you. That's a comedy. Yes, that's okay. true. I was doing I was doing Houston Nights at the and then CBS called me in, and Houston Nights was a straight up buddy uh, cop show, and uh, and then Greg Mayday, if you remember him, called me up at CBS from CBS and said, "You've got such a sense of style." Um, Let's translate that into a comedy. You can do anything you want. And so I had an idea. Um, Pitched it to him. He said, we love it, uh, but you've never done a comedy before, so I would really prefer that you team up with a comedy writer. And um, so I met Lon Diamond uh, over that. Today is still one of my closest friends. We wrote the script, and uh, CBS had no idea what they had bought. And they passed on it, and we ended Seems up. Seems a little it young for CBS. Yes, yeah, yeah. by decades, yeah. So um, we sold it to Fox, and uh, had a cult classic rather than a huge hit. You know, uh, three lasted three years. It's um, it's still a big hit in France. I still get checks. I also wrote a lot of a lot of the songs on it, so I get ASCAP checks. So I know where it's playing. You know, I know that. It's still it's playing in Belgium and in France. <laughs> well, so that that's how that happened. You know, that was in the early days of Fox, and I was working on the Tracy Ullman show uh, around that. Oh time. yeah, the, the Simpsons. Yeah. yeah, and and I have to say that it was kind of fun because they really left you alone. You know, well, we we had have, a lot yeah, of they, freedom. Yeah, they didn't have a bench. You know they couldn't they couldn't cancel it. Right. They had, they, had, uh, they couldn't put anything else on. Yeah. Which is why we lasted eighty episodes. And you also did suddenly Susan. I did. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I was at under contract at the time at Warner Brothers, and had this uh, single camera idea that I wanted to do, and Warner's never really understood it, but NBC Warren Littlefield did. So I pitched it to him. 
and in the room with David Nevins and John Landgraf as the young executives. <laughs> um, and um, he bought it. I wrote it. And then, then they wanted to make it into a multi-camera show. So I brought in all these teams of writers, uh, Peter Rocco and Adam Barr and all these guys to, who had worked for me on Parker Lewis. And we changed it into a multi-camera show. And, oh, before they wanted to change it into a multi-camera show, Brooke Shields had just been on Friends after the Super Bowl, the one where she's um, a stalker. Right. And so Warner Brothers made a deal with her, and we gave her the script, and she wanted to do it, my single-camera script. So she was attached to it. And then um, two things led to another. The show became a multi-camera show. Two writers whom I won't mention, one because one of them is dead. I don't want to dishonor her. Uh, rewrote it and turned it into a, a very average show. And uh, it went into syndication, and uh, I did very well off it. That's great. Well, again, congratulations on Dexter. Can't wait to see it. Clyde, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. It's great to talk to you. November 7th, showtime. Okay. okay, I'll be man. watching. You take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. And there you go. My thanks to Clyde Phillips. And also, as always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. So next week will be my 250th episode. This is unbelievable. I have been doing this podcast now for close to five years. And considering how most podcasts don't last five weeks, you know, I'm... I'm pretty impressed with myself, I guess. That's that's pretty cool. Anyway, I have had some very fascinating guests along the way. I've had some fun rants and uh, told some old war stories, had commentary tracks for episodes that I co-wrote or directed. Along the way, I gave advice to writers uh, what it was like working on MASH and Cheers, Frasier, The Simpsons, and other shows. Uh, also, uh, some snarky award reviews that if I did today, I'd probably get arrested and wind up in jail. I shared some plays, had some contests, uh, we had giveaways, we had a pilot, uh, some horrible music, and more horrible music is coming for Thanksgiving. Uh, some goofy travelogues, also my one and only attempt at stand-up, and, you know, just some general nonsense. So if you are new to the podcast, uh, I invite you to go back and go through the uh, archives. Like I said, some very cool guests, uh, Kevin Smith, Al Michaels, Jim Burroughs, Nancy Travis, a lot of very interesting people. But I am now going to ask you guys to participate, to do me a favor. And this is something that I do every year on my blog where I ask people to tell me about themselves so I get a sense of just who is out there. Uh, And one of the questions that I asked on uh, my blog was, do you listen to this podcast? Because the podcast is available right under the masthead of the blog. And for the most part, people in my blog said no. 
So I know I have a sizable audience here for the podcast, and I now know that it's a very different audience from the one I reach on my blog. So if you would be so kind as to email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And uh, just very briefly kind of tell me who you are, where you're from, you know, what uh, city, what country, wherever you're listening, uh, your basic age. I mean, you don't have to say 47 and a half. Um, Let's just say what generation you are, X, Y, boomer, millennial, whatever. Also, uh, if you would be so kind to uh, tell me how you found out about the podcast in the first place. And how long have you been listening? Do you listen at regular speed or one and a half or two times? I must sound like an absolute chipmunk if you're listening at uh, double speed. But I'd be kind of curious to know just how you listen. Also, finally, any suggestions you might have? You know, what do you like about the podcast? Uh, What don't you like? People seem to be okay with the fact that it's generally about 30 minutes every week. That seems to be the the time frame that people are comfortable listening to a podcast. But again, any suggestions you have, I am totally wide open. Again, email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I do appreciate it. Okay, that's it for now. Uh, Episode 250. I don't know at this point what I'm going to do for episode 250, but I'm sure it's going to be very cool. Anyway, that comes up next right here on Hollywood and Levine. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood.